On the 17th of December, 1803, a ship belonging to the British East India Company set sail from a port in Bengal, India. The ship was named the Carmarthen, and it carried on board an unusual cargo. At the time, all vessels kept careful records of who travelled on board, although they usually didn't record the names of children on their passenger lists. But this journey was different. The Carmarthen's ship's journal records 14 five-year-old children on board, taken from a local orphanage, and adds that their presence was by order of the Bengal government. This plan was carried into effect in December last by the embarkation on board the Honourable Company's ship Carmarthen of 14 children from the Lower Orphan School. Part of the reason why these children were different was that they were both passenger and cargo, and their remarkable story captures a pivotal moment in the global fight against smallpox. In the preceding years, a groundbreaking new treatment had been discovered that would upend centuries of medical practice and bring the dream of eradicating smallpox one step closer to reality. The age of vaccination had now dawned, and the miracle was unfolding from country to country, all around the world. All it took was a tiny sample of living vaccine, and whole populations could be liberated from the tyranny of smallpox. But in an age before refrigeration, when journeys by sea could take months, how could you transport this delicate material? The answer for people at the time was, in the bodies of living people. And in an age before widespread social programs to help the poor, the easiest source of these bodies was from the orphanages. These orphan children would be vaccinated, one after another, in an unbroken chain. The hope was that in this way, the vaccination material would survive and the fight against smallpox could be brought to a new area of the world. The doctor even ensured that a number of spare orphan children were brought along, in case the ship encountered any delays on its voyage. The passage of a ship sailing to Ben Coulin in the middle of December may be fairly estimated at a month, and as it would require two children to be inoculated every week to ensure the preservation of the disease, 12 or 14 children would allow for any unexpected excess of time on the passage, as well as for some days which would inevitably be lost between the inoculation of the first two children and the final departure of the ship. Dr. Shulbred describes the process in a brief and matter-of-fact way. Two of the children were inoculated on Saturday the 10th by two punctures in each arm, and when they embarked on Saturday the 17th, a well-characterised pustule was formed at each of the punctures, from which Mr. Walker, the surgeon of the Carmarthen, would inoculate two others on Sunday or Monday, and so on successively every 8th or ninth day until their arrival at Fort Marlborough. We can only imagine what it must have felt like for those children, at only five years old, to journey across the sea on a seemingly endless voyage. 
to be surrounded by the boundless ocean and the daily routines of life at sea, and to be subjected to procedures they would barely have understood, finally ending up on the shores of a completely different land. We don't know what happened to these 12 children when they arrived in Indonesia, whether they were ever brought back to Bengal, or if they were simply deposited in a local orphanage in that new land. We don't know whether they were ever compensated or thanked, or whether they ever even knew the immense role they had played in such a momentous historical moment, the decisive tipping point in humanity's war against smallpox. I'm Annie Kelly, and this is Vaccine. This is the story of a campaign against disease, how it was planned and organized, and how the people responded to it. The last battle is being fought now against a terrifying disease for which there is no cure. The means of preventing it, immunization. The world and all its peoples have won freedom. A disease which causes terrible suffering and blindness and which scars for life every person who survives it. The only human disease to be eradicated globally. The greatest public health triumph in history. But let's start from the beginning. To understand how the vaccine came about, we have to rewind the clock back 50 years before the time that the Carmarthens set sail, we have to travel to the other side of the world, to the small town of Berkeley in Gloucestershire, England, in the year 1749. Today, there is one name that echoes out as synonymous with the discovery of vaccination. It's a name we learn in school, a name that sits on the facades of hospital wards and glittering institutes, and etched in bronze at the base of marble statues around the world. That name is Edward Jenner. Jenner was born in the year 1749. It was a time of momentous change. That same year in Glasgow, Scotland, A riot had broken out after a body had disappeared from a local churchyard, and suspicion fell on anatomy students at the Glasgow Infirmary. King George II of Great Britain had just granted the Ohio Company 200,000 acres of land, north of the Ohio River, on the condition that they would attract 100 European families each year and push out the Native American people that lived there. In China, The grandson of the Kangxi Emperor, who had begun his kingdom's fight against smallpox, was now sitting on the imperial throne. Edward Jenner was the son of the local vicar, but he had early ambitions to become a doctor, and from the age of 14, became an apprentice to the Scottish surgeon and scientist John Hunter. Hunter was an early advocate of careful and methodical observation in science. But he was erratic and temperamental, and an avid experimenter. By some reports, he even performed medical experiments with himself as the test subject. 
It's said that he imparted to his student Jenna one piece of advice. Don't think. Try. Jenna's upbringing in the countryside of Berkeley gave him an early love of nature. In 1788, he was elected a fellow of the Royal Society after publishing a study of the behaviour of cuckoos. Through careful observation, he had discovered that it was the baby cuckoo who pushed the eggs of their host out of the nest, and not the adult as had been previously thought. He even noticed that baby cuckoos have a specially shaped depression in their back that they lose in adulthood, a kind of scoop designed to shove competing eggs out of the nest. And it's this talent for noticing things that many others didn't that would set Jenna apart in his quest to discover a more effective tool to combat smallpox, as he would later recall in his writings. The highest powers in our nature are our sense of moral excellence, the principle of reason and reflection, benevolence to our creatures, and our love of the divine being. Jenna's quest was not just academic, it was also very personal. He had been inoculated at the age of 14, using the current arm-to-arm method, in which he was infected with a small amount of actual smallpox. But it was a messy procedure and could often go wrong. Instead of a mild case, his inoculation gave him full-blown smallpox. He was fortunate enough to survive, but for the rest of his life he would suffer health problems that he would blame on inoculation. From that moment, he was determined to find a safer and more effective method of protecting the population from humanity's greatest enemy. It's during his time as a medical student in the English countryside that Jenna's talent for observation came into its own, and he stumbled upon a curious fact. And just as in the early advances in China and India, Jenna's inspiration actually came from the observations of people who were about as far away from the medical establishment as you can imagine. The story goes that he was on one of his walks around the countryside, when he overheard a milkmaid repeat a common piece of folklore, what people might have called an old wives' tale. She said, quite breezily to her companions, that she didn't have any fear of smallpox. That was because she had already suffered from cowpox. To Jenna, this was a revelation. Cowpox is an infectious disease closely related to smallpox that at some point in history crossed the boundary between species, from animal to human. Despite its name, it's a disease mostly endemic to rodents, but it can also spread through dogs, cattle and human populations and can even be a problem among zoo animals. It became known as cowpox because it would often afflict people who worked in close contact with animals, and especially milkmaids who would use their bare hands to milk their cows. Cowpox causes painful and unpleasant sores, much like smallpox, but it is much less dangerous, with only two deaths 
ever having been recorded as a result of infection. What's more, cowpox cannot naturally move between humans the way smallpox can, and humans can only catch it from other animals. And for centuries, people who worked closely with cows had noticed a connection between immunity to cowpox and immunity to smallpox. In the ancient traditions of Indian mythology, the Hindu deity Krishna is said to have loved milkmaids because of their beauty. A beauty caused by their lack of facial scarring that inflicted everyone else in the population. In 15th century China, experiments were tried using pills made from dried and pounded water buffalo lice to prevent smallpox. And even back in England itself, a country surgeon named John Fuster had written and spoken about the immunity of farm workers to smallpox and speculated about the connection with cowpox. But, since his experiences of inoculation with smallpox were mostly good, he saw no reason to pursue an alternative. In 1790, the British Army even launched an investigation into the effects of smallpox on their troops, and discovered the curious detail that their horse-mounted cavalry officers living every day in close quarters with their animals, were far less likely to be infected with smallpox. But they did not investigate this fact any further. As we've seen several times over the course of this story, the supposed cutting edge of the London scientific community was actually among the last places that this knowledge had reached. But Jenner himself was sure that it was the very phenomenon of mass inoculation that had made farm workers aware of their strange gift of immunity. It appeared that cowpox had been known from time immemorial, and that a vague opinion prevailed that it was a preventative of the smallpox. This opinion, I found, was comparatively new among them, for all of the older farmers declared they had no such idea in their earlier days, a circumstance that seemed easily to be accounted for from my knowing that the common people were very rarely inoculated till that practice was rendered general, so that the working people were put to the test of the preventative powers of the cowpox. Inoculation with smallpox usually caused a mild outbreak in the inoculated patient, but it had no effect on those who had already had cowpox, because they were already immune. Jenner believed that without the widespread inoculation effort in England, he would never have made this discovery. Whether or not the story of Jenner and the milkmaid is true, the observation sent him into a flurry of excitement. If it was true that infection with cowpox granted immunity to smallpox, then perhaps it could be used to inoculate people, instead of the deadly smallpox that had marred his own youth. What made Jenner different to other doctors of the time was his willingness to experiment. He would now be able to test not only for smallpox immunity, but also for another crucial factor. He wanted to find out if the immunity that cowpox granted a patient could be transferred into someone else. If this was the case, 
then the cowpox vaccine could be passed from person to person in a chain and the miraculous new treatment could be spread right around the world. To his absolute delight, his theory was proven correct. We can hear the palpable excitement in the following letter that he wrote to his friend Edward Gardner in the year 1796. I have at length accomplished what I have so long been waiting for, the passing of the vaccine virus from one human being to another by the ordinary mode of inoculation. A boy of the name Phipps was inoculated in the arm from a pustule on the hand of a young woman who was infected by her master's cows. Having never seen the disease but in its casual way before, that is when communicated from the cow to the hand of the milker, I was astonished at the close resemblance of the pustules, in some of their stages, to the variolous pustules of smallpox. You can almost detect the frenzy of excitement that he felt at the monumental discovery he was about to make. But now listen to the most delightful part of my story. The boy has since been inoculated for the smallpox, which, as I ventured to predict, produced no effect. It's worth pausing here to reflect on the fact that history has remembered Edward Jenner's name, but the name of James Phipps, the first person he vaccinated, has mostly been forgotten. Like the children on board the Carmarthen, it's important to remember that the story of the vaccine is not just a story of invention and brilliance, but of risk and sacrifice by ordinary and often forgotten people. And the safety we enjoy today is a direct result of the bravery of participants like James Phipps. Jenner attempted to publish the Phipps experiment in a manuscript, but it was rejected by the Royal Society. They were sceptical, and argued that with only one experimental subject, Jenner had failed to collect enough data. One scientist named Everard Holmes wrote the following criticism in the study's report. If 20 or 30 children were inoculated for the cowpox and afterwards for the smallpox without taking it, I might be led to change my opinion. At present, however, I want for faith. So... Jenner resolved to repeat his experiment on a greater number of subjects. But he would quickly run into a problem that people over the next two centuries would encounter repeatedly. He had run out of samples of cowpox. And the problem was, it was not actually a common disease. It broke out sporadically and unpredictably among farming communities, and many years could pass between outbreaks. There was only one thing to do, and that was to wait for the next outbreak of cowpox to occur nearby so that he could collect more samples and produce more experiments. We can only imagine the frustration that Jenna must have felt during this time, scouring the news reports and periodicals, travelling from farm to farm and asking if anyone had contracted cowpox. During this whole time, He must have known that others might also have been on the verge of the same discovery. And even worse, 
that countless people around the world were still suffering and dying from smallpox, and from the riskier method of inoculation. In fact, it would be two years until Jenna got the news he was hoping for. Cowpox had returned to his small Gloucestershire town. This was probably unwelcome news for local farmers, but for Jenna, it caused an explosion of excitement. This time, he was ready, and he had spent the last two years refining his experiment. In 1798, Jenner published a paper called An Inquiry into the Causes and Effects of the Variolae Vaccinae, a disease discovered in some of the western counties of England, particularly Gloucestershire, and known by the name of the cowpox. This time, the publication was well received. Henry Klein, the president of the Royal College of Surgeons, quickly sought to replicate the experiment and gave the following glowing report. The cowpox experiment has succeeded admirably. And Dr. Lister, who was formerly physician to the smallpox hospital, attended the child with me, and he's convinced that it is not possible to give him the smallpox. I think the substituting of the cowpox poison for the smallpox promises to be one of the greatest improvements that has ever been made in medicine. Because of the treatment's origin among cows, the treatment was named after the Latin word vacina, meaning deriving from the cow, or vacca. The age of inoculation was now over. The age of the vaccine had begun. There were a few reasons that so many doctors almost immediately preferred vaccination to inoculation. Inoculation was a frightening procedure that involved giving people real doses of smallpox. This meant that smallpox had to be transported from place to place, and the risk of the inoculation actually causing an outbreak was always present. The other was that cowpox was far milder than the weakened doses of smallpox transferred through inoculation, and it would sometimes only result in one or two pustules around the infected area. This would have been reassuring to local doctors, who often faced the wrath of angry parents if an inoculation went wrong. News soon spread all around the world of the miraculous invention, but the actual rollout of vaccination happened at a much slower pace. It was relatively easy to carry cowpox matter small distances, often dried onto a piece of cotton thread, but it could not survive long journeys. This was an age when travelling between countries could take weeks on a tall sailing ship with no refrigeration or airtight storage. All attempts to transport dried vaccination material had failed, and so there was only one solution to transport the vaccine in living human bodies. The spread of the vaccine was an unbroken chain of human contacts that stretched right around the world, but this too posed a problem. After about two weeks, the symptoms of a vaccinated person tended to subside, 
and it was no longer possible to extract potent material from them in order to continue the chain of vaccination. It was here that our 14 five-year-old orphans on the ship Carmarthen came into play. But the use of children to transport cowpox does seem to have caused some degree of outcry at the time. A later expedition to carry the vaccine from India to China, for example, seems to have reacted to some form of public outrage. They changed their policy to use adults to transport the virus, paying them for their service the price of three gold pagodas, the coins minted by the British East India Company in Madras. The ship's log contains the following report from its onboard surgeon, and it's not hard to detect a markedly defensive tone about his choice of transportation subject. The persons who now agree to go are such arrived at a period of life when they are capable of judging for themselves, a circumstance which must at once silence every effort at misrepresentation on this subject. The use of children as containers for the virus is not the only ethical complication involved in the spread of vaccination. By the year 1805, the British East India Company, backed by the Royal Navy and regular troops of the British Army, had pushed the French out of India and crushed all local rulers who resisted them, such as Mysore's Tipu Sultan and the Kingdom of Kandy in Sri Lanka. The new century would see vast amounts of wealth transferred from the wealthy kingdoms of India to bank vaults in London. And part of the British justification for expanding their imperial power was the use of vaccination. For the next century, the British Empire and the practice of vaccination would be inextricably linked. In 1800, the British government in Madras decided to launch a campaign to encourage the practice of inoculation among their troops, for whom smallpox was a constant danger. But it seems some civilians in India were also inoculated. In August of the year 1802, the government claimed that more than 26,000 people had been inoculated in just three years. But with the discovery of the cowpox vaccine, they were determined to use this new method on their soldiers and sailors. An order from the British Vice Admiral Philip Beaver announced the change in policy. Any soldiers, seamen or marines in the fleet who may not have had the smallpox and wish to avoid that dreadful malady, may by application to Dr. Marshall on board the flagship be inoculated with the cowpox, which, without pain or illness, or requiring particular diet or state of body, or leaving any marks, effectually excludes all possibility of the patients ever being affected with the smallpox and the British imperial authorities would soon become determined to spread vaccination among their colonial subjects in India too. Certainly, some of this determination derived from a genuine desire to do good, as one Governor Duncan of Bombay would write. It would be a very comfortable reflection that we have been at last able to propagate the vaccine disease throughout India by which the lives of millions yet unborn may, and must indeed, be saved. 
But there was also a firm financial incentive to the campaign. A vaccinated population was a productive population, and it's clear that the British looked ahead hungrily to the profits they expected to draw from their new colonial dominion, as the following military letter shows. The advantages, as an object of importance to the interests and prosperity of the state, will be experienced in the increased resources derived from abundant population. The only question was how to get the living vaccine to India. And this was actually an incredibly difficult proposition. Several previous attempts to transport the vaccine had failed. The Suez Canal connecting the Mediterranean to the Indian Ocean would not be dug for another 60 years. And so any voyage to India had to take the journey of many months around the Cape of Africa through a variety of tropical climates. One ship, called the Queen, that carried the vaccine was even shipwrecked off the coast of San Salvador. Countless methods were tried, including storing the vaccine between vacuum-sealed glass plates. One friend of Edward Jenner, a Dr. Underwood, even tried to use his own children as a vaccination chain on board his ship. But when he arrived in India, he found to his disappointment that the vaccine had lost its potency. The British inspected thousands of cows across India, trying to find any that were already infected with the rare disease, but without any luck. Jenner himself was frustrated. He watched with annoyance as King Charles IV of Spain successfully carried the vaccine across the Atlantic to the Spanish colonies, using a chain of orphan children. And Jenner argued in one interview that it would take only one ship, a doctor, and 10 people who had not already had the vaccine to transport the miracle cure to the East. But he faced a lack of enthusiasm among British authorities. One reason for this, according to Jenner, was the growing influence of a movement that had sprung up in recent years with increasing fervour. The anti-vaccination movement. They had been lobbying the government to crack down on the practice, and had succeeded enough that the government in Britain had become hesitant about supporting Jenner's scheme. But eventually, only four years after Jenner's discovery, the first vaccine did arrive in British-controlled Bombay, and it arrived not on board a ship, but by the ancient trade routes that crossed the land through the Middle East. It was moved privately by a chain of wealthy and well-connected individuals, among them Thomas Bruce, the seventh Earl of Elgin, who at the same time was beginning to strip the Parthenon in Athens of its marble sculptures and transport them to the British Museum in London. The vaccine travelled through Baghdad, where nearly a millennia earlier the Persian scholar Al-Razi had written one of the very first clinical descriptions of smallpox and from there it sailed down the river Tigris to the port town of Basra, where it crossed the blue waters of the Persian Gulf and on to India. The first successful vaccination in India was carried out on a three-year-old girl named Anna Dusthall, the daughter of a servant to a British officer. The doctor's report notes her quiet forbearance with some admiration, 
She was remarkably good-tempered, and to her quietness and patience in suffering the operation, its success is in some measure to be attributed. One week later, he vaccinated five other children using material from her arm, and established a secure supply of vaccine in India. Only five years later, the British claimed that a million Indian people had been vaccinated. As we've seen, the practice of inoculation was well known in much of India, particularly the northern regions, and had been in use long before the British colonised the land. But British authorities now claimed vaccination as a solely English technology, despite its global origins. The British set about stripping the practice of any of the ritual elements that had for centuries accompanied inoculation in India. To Indian people, the vaccination that now returned to their shores in altered form would have been practically unrecognisable. In January 1803, a plan for the diffusion of vaccination in India was published. Indigenous vaccinators were to be employed, instructed, and dispatched across the various districts, where they could report to European surgeons on their progress. And once again, local children played a key role, often being chosen to accompany the vaccinator from one town to the next, as a biological carrier of the vaccine. The young girl Anna Dusthall was even later given a smallpox inoculation in a much publicised event designed to demonstrate that she was now immune to the virus, although it is not recorded if she received this procedure with the same good humour as the first. It's difficult to tell exactly how successful the rollout of vaccination was in India. Part of the problem is that local vaccinators were paid depending on how many people they had vaccinated, and so they had an incentive to exaggerate the numbers. It's also not hard to imagine why ordinary people may have had their doubts. Reactions to the procedure were incredibly varied across India, across class, caste and religion. But at least in some places, it was treated as a foreign and alien introduction, an imposition by an imperial power and in some cases, as a kind of religious abomination. In Varanasi, it was claimed that the vaccinators were seeking to drink the blood of children. At Muzaffarpur, some alleged that the British government was planning to exterminate the Indian people, and that in a few years everyone who had been vaccinated would die of the plague. And many theories were much more plausible, since the British were taking down the names of everyone they vaccinated, many Indian people quite reasonably feared that they would soon be subject to a crippling tax. There are a few stories of travelling vaccinators being obstructed by angry crowds, but these are relatively uncommon. What seems to be a more frequent form of resistance was simple refusal. Vaccination at this point was not compulsory after all, and through the sources the British left behind, we can see vaccinators adapting their approach in the face of some of this resistance. The British Medical Board in Calcutta recommended the publication of advertisements in the language of Urdu, Hindi, Bengali and Sanskrit. They even tried, slightly ineptly, to manipulate the traditional reverence for cows among Indian Hindus, 
as the Medical Board of Madras wrote in 1803. The vaccine is a gift from heaven through the medium of that highly favoured and long venerated animal from which it takes its name. They tried, where possible, to underline the similarities between the new practice of vaccination and the traditional inoculation ritual that many local people would have been familiar with. In one account, the superintendent of vaccination in Madras described how local vaccinators began to reintroduce their own elements of ritual that were common with inoculation. This practice is still scrupulously followed, but greatly modified. For instead of cold water being poured on the head and shoulders, as was formerly the case, the child gets a general warm bath on the third or fifth day, as one or the other may be deemed the more propitious. One writer named Francis White Ellis even wrote a piece of literature in the South Indian language of Tamil called Aramavara Vilakam, meaning something like the legend of the cow's milk of eternal life attempting to convince people that vaccination could be folded into traditional understandings of medicine and mythology. The British faced similar opposition to vaccination in other colonies too, especially in places where inoculation was long entrenched as a practice. In Kenya, for instance, vaccinators met resistance from local people when their vaccinated sores festered and became infected. As a result, tensions developed between East Africans and British doctors, leading to lower vaccination rates in the colony. As vaccines swept rapidly across national borders in only their first 10 years of existence, their adaptation and evolution hint at so many of the common issues regarding trust and authority that still seem to ensnare their acceptance and usage today. Even today, vaccination can feel invasive, both personally in the form of the needle entering the skin, but also culturally. When we are vaccinated, we relinquish control, for however short a period of time, over our own bodies. And for centuries, this fear has underpinned resistance to the practice. And if you think people have a hard time trusting their government today, Imagine how hard it would be to trust an imperial power that had recently conquered your land and seemed to be using the vaccination program as a form of propaganda. In 1827, Dr. Whitelaw Ainsley declared confidently that vaccination in Asia had convinced millions of the benefits that came from being conquered and colonised. At length. We have happily convinced the millions that if, from a powerful empire in the West, came an inordinate thirst for dominion and the sword of the conqueror, thence also came the sympathizing heart and the healing hand. But this would be far from the truth. At the turn of the 19th century, for the millions of people who now lived under European empires, and for the citizens of Europe itself, trust in the people who ruled them could hardly have been lower. Many, quite understandably, did not believe that their government or the medical establishment had their best interests at heart. These early mass vaccination programs 
tested people's trust to the limit. And it was this central question around the limits of personal control and public health that would fuel some of the most fierce and violent resistance to vaccination that history has ever seen. The first sparks had already begun to fly in Edward Jenner's lifetime, but they would soon light a fire that would rage all around the world. You've been listening to Vaccine. I'd like to thank my voice actors, Stephen Knowles, Doug McDonald, Peter Walters, Lachlan Lucas, Darren Oliver, Jake Barrett-Mills, Paul Cooper, Ree Brignall, and Lou Millington. This series wouldn't be possible without the hard work of our academic team. Dr. Agnes Arnold Forster, Kristen Brigg-Ortiz, and Dr. Gareth Millwood at the University of Birmingham, who acted as a special consultant. Vaccine is an independent show, and we prefer not to disrupt our programme with advertising and sponsorship. It can only survive with the generous support of our listeners. If you enjoyed Vaccine, please consider heading to www.patreon.com forward slash vaccine podcast to contribute something and to support the production of more quality historical programming. For now, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>